Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Days are numbered for the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare. House Republicans last month passed a bill meant to be the first step in the repeal process. Now attention is on the Senate as GOP Majority Leader Mitch McConnell works to come up with a plan that will actually pass the chamber. Coming up, we'll focus on how these proposals could impact states like Connecticut, including federally qualified community health centers, places where people previously uninsured have been getting treated under the Medicaid expansion. But first, we can't talk about health insurance without talking about Hartford-based insurer Aetna. WNPR's business reporter Harriet Jones is here, and you can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Harriet, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. So we know last week uh, there was lots of speculation, flurry yes, of activity, yes, politicians <laughs> standing behind podiums. Aetna has confirmed that it is looking to move its headquarters. What's the latest? Right. So, I mean, this has been, you know, kind of, there's been speculation for quite some time, but it kind of came to a head last week, prompted somewhat by Kevin Rennie in his Daily Ructions blog. He said he had a source who knew that Aetna was looking at New York. And so this um, prompted a lot of, as you say, the politicians coming out to, to say their piece. And then finally, Aetna itself came out with a statement. It's the first time they've made a positive statement on this. And they said, yes, we're looking, we're in talks with several states, haven't decided on a location yet. We hope to have a definite announcement for you by early summer is what they said, which sounds like it should be fairly soon. Remind us the footprint that Aetna has had in Hartford for all these years. Sure. Well, so, it, I mean, it is the, it's the Connecticut company, right? So it was founded here in 1853, um, you know, it's it's really very deeply entwined with the city of Hartford. Um, it had it's it's had more employment in the past than it does now. It has about fifty eight hundred employees here uh, in Hartford, uh, and also its C suite. You know, its executives, Mark Bergelini, the CEO. All the decision making goes on here in Hartford. Now, you mentioned that Aetna put out a statement saying that it is looking. Again, nothing confirmed, no location um, d definite yet. Have they said why they're looking to move? So it was pretty brief. But what they did say, which gave kind of an indication, they said, we're, uh, we have the goal of broadening our access to innovation and the talent that will fill knowledge economy type positions. So it sounds, that sounded to me, that had kind of echoes of GE. We remember GE's statement from last year when they moved to Boston that they were looking for that kind of innovation center. They no longer wanted to be in a suburban campus. They wanted to be in kind of an urban environment um, where they were, you know, there were maybe startups around. There was other entrepreneurial activity going on. That sounds a little bit like what Aetna is saying now. Now, you talked to an economist. Tell us what he told you about what the repercussions would be if Aetna does move headquarters out of Hartford. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, what they've said, though, they've said that in terms of impact on employment, it's not going to be huge. They've talked about a few hundred positions moving. So that might be the C-suite. It might be the administration that goes along with those executive positions. It would not be the bulk of their workforce is what they've said. The impact on Hartford 
Bertolini described it as minimal. Mm. So, um, but still, you know, those top level jobs have what uh, what we call a big multiplier effect. I talked to uh, economist Don Klepper Smith about this, and this is what he had to say. For every job lost in the insurance sector, there are another 2.3 jobs lost elsewhere in the local economy. And for every dollar spent within the insurance sector, there's another $1.63 generated in incremental spendings. And this comes at a time uh, where the fiscal problems in Hartford are pronounced. So it really puts the city of Hartford behind the eight ball. And what has Hartford, what are Hartford leaders saying about this? So Luke Bronin, he was one of the politicians who came out and had a press conference last week. And he said, he had a sense of sort of sense of inevitability about it. He did say, you know, it's been clear for some time they, they were looking to move their headquarters. But again, he majored on this theme of they're going to keep the bulk of their employment here. I think what the politicians are hoping that this ends up as is the same kind of model as Travelers has. So Travelers was headquartered in Hartford. It moved its headquarters out in the early 90s to New York. Um, but it kept a big employment base here. It has most of its property casualty lines based here large employment, and it is one of the city's major employers. So I think they're hoping that's what happens with Hartford. Now, Governor Malloy also held a <laughs> Governor Malloy also held a press conference. This is what he focused on in his statement to the public. In the United States, there is a desire to live, to, to work, and have people live in vibrant urban centers. And, and I think we need to do a lot more uh, to make our urban centers uh, more vibrant. And I think that's particularly true uh, in Hartford, uh, Bridgeport, and Waterbury. I think New Haven's making some progress. I think the Stanford, the Greenwich to Norwalk corridor, including Stanford, have, have moved in that direction pretty rapidly. I wanted to play that clip, Harriet, because it seems to me that the rhetoric has changed. So for mm-hmm. um, when, especially before GE made their final decision last year, Critics of, of Malloy and others were saying, look, it's the tax climate. These corporations right. don't want to be here because of the business climate and the huge burden on businesses. We've heard now for several years the kinds of incentives that the Malloy administration offers up to companies to keep them here to possibly attract other companies. But now we're hearing this message that, well, we need to do more to make our cities more vibrant and to make companies want to stay. Yeah. So, I mean, th- that tax piece is kind of an interesting um, way to look at things because that's, that has has been the Republican message particularly is we need things to be more business friendly. We need to be a low tax environment. But if you look at GE, they moved to Massachusetts, which is actually a higher tax environment. So that wasn't obviously the determining piece. Um, So are incentives working? I mean, I think states feel like they need to be in the incentives game. And in fact, uh, we know that uh, Governor Malloy has said to Aetna, you know, we will match any package that any other state offers to you. So they're still trying to play that game. Um, but, you know, is it the, the business environment or is it this urban centers piece? So um, city, back in the kind of 1970s, when New York particularly was kind of perceived as more of a dangerous place to be and, you know, its infrastructure was crumbling, that type of thing, um, headquarters did move out to Connecticut. They moved to these kind of suburban campuses to, to Fairfield County, that type, those sorts of places. And that was seen as the trend where you'd have these kind of peaceful suburban campuses. That no longer is what's in fashion for corporate headquarters. Now everybody wants to be in these revitalized cities. And Connecticut's feeling like it's a little bit behind the curve of New York and Boston, which now have more vibrant, um, more uh, you know, uh, up-to-the-minute centers.
This is where we live. Uh, in studio with me is WNPR's business reporter, Harriet Jones. We're talking about uh, the news last week, or waiting for the news, rather, of when Aetna is going to decide uh, if they're definitely moving their headquarters out of Hartford and where it will be. I guess the question now, Harriet, is when is that announcement expected to come? Well, as I said, they've they've said early summer. I would think we're probably in early summer right now, aren't we? So, you know, I would think it, it sounds like it's going to be shortly. Um, and this is actually something that has been, you know, there's, there's some history to this. So Mark Bertolini has talked probably for about the last year or he's given indications that this may be under consideration. Um, Aetna just went through a, a long, eventually failed merger process with Humana, which is based in Kentucky. And back last year, uh, Mark Bertolini said, you know, we will make a commitment that Aetna, you know, when we merge, there will be a footprint in Louisville. And he very pointedly did not make that same commitment for any of their other real, real estate portfolio and certainly not for Hartford. So that was the point at which those rumors were kind of given rocket fuel. I wanted to shift our focus uh, from uh, whether uh, Aetna will stay uh, the headquarters in Connecticut uh, to an issue that affects millions in this country, and that's the, the future of the Affordable Care Act. Can you remind us why Aetna pulled out of ACA first? Yeah, so uh, they um, were in very fewer and fewer states. They did. They were actually were never on the, the Connecticut exchange, but they had been on the exchange in several other states. They said for uh, 2018 they are pulling out entirely, and it's because uh, the costs are going up and they can no longer make money is what they're saying. Now, he also uh, said, Mark Bertolini, again, the CEO of Aetna, he's had some surprising comments a couple of weeks ago talking about single-payer health care, um, something that you wouldn't expect to hear from a, a big insurer. Yeah. So, I mean, Bertolini is known somewhat as a little bit of a philosopher on these issues. He likes to opine on health care and what he sees as the model in the future. He likes to position Aetna as kind of an innovator. But he did have some interesting things to say about what we call single-payer I think instead of shouting back and forth across the stage, let's discuss what single payer means. You know, is it a single source of financing, which does not yet get at the cost structure? Is it a healthcare system where the government owns the doctors in the hospitals and operates them as well, like the NIH and you know in 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 uh, the UK? What is that? So that when we start yelling single payer back and forth, let's discuss that. But right now, in this country, the government doesn't run anything in healthcare other than the ACA, and they're doing a poor job of it. So that was during an investor meeting, and he um, actually said also that he does not favor government-run healthcare. He favors, he talked a little bit about public-private partnership, maybe um, the, the German model as being something that we should look to, where people have a basic level of insurance that comes from, from the government, but they can opt to buy more. That was something that he talked about. And what was the response when these comments came out? Um, so people are very interested, as you say, to hear you know a major health insurance CEO talking about single payer. But basically, he was saying we need to have this debate, especially now when um, we're talking about re reforming Obamacare. He sees Obamacare as a system that has failed, that hasn't you know fulfilled its promise. Something needs to be fixed. He's talked about fixing the system rather than repealing and replacing. He thinks that's the more helpful rhetoric to get into. But obviously, as the Republicans think about the bill that they're going to put forth, Bertolini is urging a wider debate. And now we're going to shift to Washington. You know, where do we stand with efforts of the Republicans to repeal ACA? So we saw that the, the House passed its bill, squeaked past um, uh, what has proved to be a very unpopular um, set of proposals for uh, basically repealing the ACA and replacing it with what they're calling the American Health Care Act. Um, the Senate 
it doesn't seem to, to want to take up that particular bill. They are, at the moment, um, there's a, a caucus of a, a very small number of Republican senators who are trying to craft their own bill. Uh, and so we're kind of somewhat on tenterhooks as to what will be in that and how, how much will it look like the House bill. We know the Republicans are in control, but that doesn't mean the Democrats are giving up this fight. Uh, what did uh, our Senator Chris Murphy have to say about about efforts to repeal? So, yeah, I mean, one of his focuses, particularly he spoke on this in the Senate in the last couple of weeks, um, is, you know, why are we he, – he was saying, why is the Trump administration basically um, uh, um, trying to sabotage – the Affordable Care Act. Why is it trying to get rid of what's already in place? And this is what he had to say. He has commanded his agencies to pick it apart in any way that they can. And so to the extent that there is any diminution in the health of these exchanges, to the extent that insurers are thinking about not participating or are pushing up their rates, there is only one reason for it. It is the active sabotage campaign that the Trump administration is engaged in to try to destroy the Affordable Care Act. Go ahead. So Chris Murphy is basically saying Obamacare isn't failing. It's being sabotaged by the Trump administration. That is his his um, contention. And we do see insurers either pulling out like Aetna has done or um, hugely raising their rates. I mean, the two insurers that are on the um, Connecticut exchange right now have asked for huge rate increases for next year, for 2018, if they remain on the exchange. They've also looked for much more flexibility to, to pull out depending on what the federal government does, what kind of changes it introduces into the system. Now, coming up, we're going to talk about um, what's going to happen if these changes to the Medicaid expansion, like reducing these subsidies, subsidies um, what that will mean in terms of impact on states like Connecticut. Uh, but I wanted to go back to something that you had said earlier with uh, uh, Aetna CEO Mark Bertolini talking about, you know, the the government not uh, running the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they're actually running it in a poor way. When we talk about Obamacare, we think about the benefits that people um, are happy about. So more people have been insured, and uh, people with pre-existing health conditions feel that they can get um, adequate insurance without being penalized or being said that they can't uh, be insured. But what were some of the failures of Obamacare? You mentioned Mark Bertolini talked about the costs keep going up. Right. So, I mean, it, it, you know, many people have said that it's kind of a misnomer, the Affordable Care Act, because it didn't contain enough provisions to try to contain cost. That wasn't really addressed enough in the bill. It's kind of an interesting, um, it's interesting to talk about the process, the political process whereby these things get put together. Because if you look at Obamacare, at that stage when that was negotiated, the health insurers themselves had a very large voice in that. They had a prominent seat at the table. They had a very unified voice through uh, their lobbying group, America's Health Insurance Plans, and they really shaped Obamacare. That is less the case now with the American Health Care Act, the AHCA. A couple of the major insurers, including it, have left that lobbying group the CEOs of the health insurers are not speaking with one voice. They've all had slightly different things to say about how, how they'd like to see the future of health insurance or, or you know, of health care in this country. So I think the Republicans are not hearing a unified message from the industry as they try to craft this bill. 
I'm here with uh, Harriet Jones, WNPR's business reporter. We're talking about the future of the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare. Are you worried about um, what's going to happen uh, with all of the debate in Washington? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Are you looking forward to um, a replacement effort here in Washington? You can, we want to hear from you, too, 860-275-7266. Um, we're going to hopefully reach a uh, CEO of a New Haven-based federally qualified community health center in just a few minutes. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, Harriet, before we go to break, if we can talk more about the insurance exchange and the process. I know Connecticut was lauded for um, its efforts with Access Health CT. Uh, what's going to happen there? Well, uh, nobody knows. <laughs> so uh, we did uh, originally have four insurers on the exchange when it first started up, but we're now down to two, Anthem and Connecticut. And both of those um, have said, you know, that uh, Again, they want big rate increases. Um, and they also, the big issue for insurers for next year is this thing that's called the cost sharing reimbursements. Now, everybody, well, let me see, 73% of the people on the Connecticut exchange get a subsidy for being on the exchange. That's to help them pay for their premium to actually buy health care. But there's another large um a group of people on the exchange who get this thing called the CSR. Now, those are low-income people who can't afford to pay for their deductibles and their co-pays. So they get this um, subsidy from the government that goes directly to the insurers. It just bypasses the consumer altogether. And that supports things like their co-pays and deductibles. That is one of the key things that the Democrats are complaining about, that the Trump administration is sabotaging the ACA. Because the Trump administration is paying these uh, CSR payments Month by month, they have not committed to continue to pay that subsidy. And if those subsidies do not continue, that is the thing that may well kind of sink Obamacare because the insurers just would not be able to afford to offer plans if they didn't get this federal subsidy. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Harriet Jones is here as we talk about the future of health care. Big reductions to Medicaid have been included in proposals by the GOP and also in the president's budget plan. What's the local impact? We'll find out after the break. We want to hear from you, too. What's most concerning to you about the debate happening in Washington regarding your health care? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The future of the Affordable Care Act remains in flux as Republican members of Congress attempt to agree on a plan that repeals and replaces Obamacare. A provision in the House Republican bill approved last month would impact millions on Medicaid. The same people who've received care at federally qualified community health centers across the country. What does that mean for Connecticut residents? Are you one of these uh, residents who've been getting care at a, at a health center and you wonder about what the future means for you? You can join the conversation, 866 0275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. In studio with me is WMPR's Harriet jo- Jones, and we're hoping to speak to a community health center CEO about that impact in just a few minutes. And I wanted to talk more about Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. because we know Connecticut was one of 30 states that opted for this Medicaid expansion. So people that were previously uninsured were able to get coverage. Uh, 70,000 more insured patients covered by Husky Health Plans, according to 
the Connecticut Health Investigative uh, Team. Um, that's since 2012. So what happens now if health centers aren't getting the subsidy? Right. So, I mean, that's been one of the most controversial pieces of certainly the House passed bill is the way that it saves money uh, is, is to pull back on this Medicaid expansion. Um, and it's it's something that's caused a lot of controversy around the country, you know, particularly in re- Republican states, because the Republican states that did opt for it, you know, their, their populations do rely very heavily on that Medicaid expansion, their lower income populations. So that's something that's going to be very politically difficult, I think, for the Republicans. And it's something I, I imagine that the the Senate, uh, the senators who are currently discussing their replacement for, for uh, Obamacare, that would be some a piece that is quite controversial. Uh, the Washington Post is reporting that these senators that you referenced to Harriet, uh, 20 GOP senators from states that expanded Medicaid, right. they're seeking a compromise, according to the Post, that would phase out the extra federal expansion money for several additional years. They also want the overall program to grow yearly by a formula that's more generous than the House would allow and protect uh, Medicaid money states use to combat the growing problem of opioid abuse. That's something we haven't talked about. We're right. talking very generally about health care, but specific services that have been, ex- that have been able to be expanded including this epidemic sweeping the country. Yes, and again, that's something that our senators, Senator Chris Murphy and Senator Richard Blumenthal, have raised in the Senate is, you know, right in the middle of what is a massive health care crisis in the, in the U.S., uh, we're talking about pulling back on health care funding. Um, so, yeah, that's, a, a, that's, again, a politically difficult piece for the Republicans as they try to craft this. Uh, I, you know, and one thing Mark Bertolini had to say in that investor conference we are talking about is that, um, you know, some of the rhetoric is very difficult for the Republicans. Let's listen to that clip. The Congress cannot repeal the ACA. It's impossible. By virtue of the parliamentary rules in the Senate, they need 60 votes and it won't happen. And I have had very strong conversations with people who matter in this process to drop the word repeal and start using fix. Because if they use fix, they will get Democrats to support them and what they need to do to make this program work. Until they get over the rhetoric, they're stuck. So that's an interesting thing, that thing about the parliamentary rules. I think my understanding is that they do it quickly, if they do it under a budget reconciliation, um, the guise of a budget reconciliation, and that, that would have to be done you know, in the next couple of months, they can do it with a bare majority. It's if they get into the fall and further, then they need those 60 votes and they do need more support from Democrats. Well, we should talk about what's been going on in Connecticut. We know with the, the budget deficit, as, as few, if, if fewer money is uh, expected from the federal government and the state doesn't, you know, we know the state doesn't have the, the cash for these programs. I mean, how many people could be without Without health insurance. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, that pullback on Medicaid expansion could be a huge impact in Connecticut. The other thing that they've been talking about doing with, with Medicaid is block granting it so that it's not just paid for directly from the federal government. Each state would get a block of money. Here's your money to pay for the people on Medicaid. And that, in effect, would also be a cut. It would be a cut to services because services would have to be fit within that block grant. Uh, we have a, a caller on the line now from Bethel. Uh, Mary Ann's calling. Mary Ann, we just have a couple of minutes. Uh, what's your comment about our health care system in this country? Well, I think the whole problem boils down to it being far more expensive than other countries. And it's so expensive now that middle class people can't afford it. You know, working class people who are very poor are getting, you know, are just starting under Medicaid to get good coverage. How do we cut back? 
how do we make things streamlined? How do we make it more efficient? And that may mean drawing lines on how much care people get. Well, Marianne, thank you for your comments. I mean, these are all important points to make that politicians are, are mulling about themselves. Yeah, absolutely. That that cost piece and how do we contain costs. One of the things that's happened under Obamacare, which, um, you know, people in the industry themselves have said has been a success is this uh, thing known as an ACO. So this is where uh, providers get together and they're, you know, instead of fee for service, you you, you perform a test, you get a fee. Um, they're talking about outcomes. So the providers get together, they're given a certain amount of money to treat a patient um, and they have to craft the best solution for that patient and they're paid for the outcome rather than, you know, just for the service that they're providing. And that's a model that insurers want to see going forward. That's something that they see really could actually um, be a way to contain costs. And some of that innovation is really what's going on under Medicaid because mm-hmm. there's so much control that people have under Medicaid um, to provide services within this contained system, this ACO system, that uh, you know, some of the innovation that is going to, to cost containment is, is happening under Medicaid. Well, I want to thank WNPR's Harriet Jones. It's always a pleasure to have you in, and yeah, thank you for, to be here, Lisa. for explaining this very uh, complex uh, process before legislators. Um, um, coming up, a conversation with Dr. Rachel Pearson, author of the book No Apparent Distress, a doctor's coming of age on the front lines of American medicine. She'll share with us her observations on what needs fixing in the way healthcare is delivered in the U.S. Stay with us. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow from the South Beach diet to CrossFit and other fitness fads, on the next Where We Live, you'll be surprised to learn what researchers have to say about the impact of diet and exercise. Join the conversation on the next Where We Live. Now, today we've been talking about health care, and our next guest knows firsthand how Americans are impacted not only by health care policy, but by the kind of training doctors receive. Dr. Rachel Pearson is a researcher and a resident at Seattle Children's Hospital and author of No Apparent Distress, A Doctor's Coming of Age on the Front Lines of American Medicine. She joins us from the studios of KUOW in Seattle. Dr. Pearson, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. I understand you grew up in Texas to a working-class family. Tell us about your childhood. Yeah, so... My dad's a carpenter. Um, My mom went to college when my brother and I were young and ended up becoming a high school teacher. And we grew up initially way out in the country in East Texas on some family land and then ended up moving to a tiny island called Port Aransas in the Gulf Coast. And now you're a doctor and a resident uh, in Seattle, uh, but you weren't always dead set on becoming a doctor. Uh, you wanted to be a writer, I believe, and study at Columbia University. What drew you to medicine? Well, Lucy, what drew me was a job that I got in Austin as I was preparing to move to New York City to follow my dream of becoming a writer. Uh, I needed to save a little bit of money, and so I got a job working at a clinic as a patient advocate. And this was an abortion clinic um, in Texas. And I found myself working primarily as a counselor. Because I speak Spanish, I mostly counseled um, Spanish-speaking women who were preparing to have an abortion. And 
it was for me a life-changing and certainly a career-changing experience. Mm. Tell us what about that experience really impacted you, maybe some of the, the women that you met there. A lot of the women there told me stories that they hadn't been able to tell to anyone else. Um, so these were immigrant women primarily, and many were from Catholic communities. And so, for example, I talked with a woman who had been physically abused by her husband to the point where he had put her in the hospital to where she was sure that he had been trying to kill her. Um, and when she decided to get an abortion, for her, that was a way of protecting her child, you know, what she thought of as her child, from having to be under the influence of the man who had hurt her. Um, so what I found was stories like that over and over, stories that were more complicated than what you hear in the political debates about abortion access, abortion rights. When you really listen to the women's stories, you learn that it's not so simple as choice or not choice. You're a native Texan. Texas is in the news when we talk about abortion, despite the Supreme Court's ruling uh, just last year. Um, I, I read recently that Texas has just approved another bill trying to seek limits on abortion uh, in the second trimester. You know, what's your reaction? Again, because you've had this experience helping women, counseling them when they're trying to decide uh, what to do. What's your reaction when you, when you, you, you hear what's going on in the political arena? I think that there's plenty of data showing that when we w limit women's access to comprehensive health care, and that includes reproductive health care, and that includes access to abortion, the health of women and children suffer. So a lot of the women that I cared for were mothers, and many of them made the decision to have an abortion, knowing what it's like to have kids, knowing what it's like to take care of kids, and frankly, having an abortion because they needed to be able to take care of the kids that they already had. Um, since writing that passage in your book, uh, No Apparent Distress, uh, what has been the reaction um, when people realize that that experience as a counselor you know, helped you, uh, lead you into a career of medicine? So for a physician, Talking about abortion openly or publicly is pretty taboo. Physicians who provide abortion are threatened with violence. Um, some have been killed. And so it certainly wasn't an easy decision to tell that story. But to me, it felt so urgent to contribute stories that felt full and real and complex to help us think with our hearts and our full minds about what can seem like a very abstract or straightforward political issue. Have you gotten any reaction from people on the other side who believe that um, abortion um, should not happen? I have, you know, mostly like online comments, and that's fine. I've also had some interesting conversations. So for example, my brother's a commercial fisherman. One of his friends is an evangelical Christian in Arizona. And this gentleman, who is very fundamentally opposed to abortion, 
after reading this story of a woman I cared for who was Catholic and who believed that having an abortion would commit her soul to hell, nevertheless went through with it because she needed to feed her kids. Um, after reading the story of a woman who sacrificed her immortal soul in order to take care of her children, this evangelical friend of my brother's at least, said that it made him think differently about the issue. And that's what I really hope to do with the book is reach out to people across the political spectrum. I believe that that's the power of stories. Stories can help us join each other in experience, in feeling, and in thought, and can make what seem like really harsh, straightforward political decisions or divisions actually a bit more complicated and a bit more human. This is where we live. We're speaking with Dr. Rachel Pearson. Um, she's written the book, No Apparent Distress, A Doctor's Coming of Age on the Front Lines of American Medicine. Uh, so you went on from that experience as a counselor to, to pre-med classes in Portland, Oregon, a far away from um, your hometown uh, in Texas. What was that like? It was super interesting. Um, the post program I did, I took biology, physics, organic chemistry, general chemistry all in one year. And so I don't recommend it. Um, Glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah, but it was a joy to realize that I could understand science. Um, I made some really great friends in Portland. And unfortunately, one of my best friends there, um, his name was Frank. He was a really lovely and really smart young person. He didn't make it through the year. He he committed suicide. And that was my first exposure to one of the harshest truths of medicine, which is that people in this field, uh, students, residents, and physicians, um, have really high rates of depression and shockingly high rates of suicide. Frank's death was not the last time that I've lost a friend in that way since joining this field. Uh, didn't you make a pact, you and Frank, that if you guys could both get through pre-med, uh, that you'd move on to medical school, that you were um, confident that you could make it? And, and when he passed, uh, how did that impact um, your trajectory? When Frank died, I felt very alone in my medical training or my pre-medical training for the first time. And I thought about stepping away. Certainly lots of people encouraged me to. And then I had this conversation with my father. So I highly recommend if you have a working class dad from Texas, when you are in a rough situation, um, you need to turn to somebody else for the tissues and the compassion. Because what my dad said to me was, I completely understand what you're going through. He told me a story of having gone through a very similar situation. But you are from a family of people who go through difficult things and carry on. So he told me a story about my grandfather fighting in World War II. He told me a story about my grandmother going through chemotherapy. She was a teacher, 
And one morning she woke up and all her toenails had fallen out from the chemo. She put on her shoes and she went to school and she taught. My dad basically said, these are the people you come from. This is who you are and you're going to stick to your path. Um, So I did. And it looks like you dedicated this book to your father. Yeah, he's a really lovely guy. (laughs) My going into medicine has meant a lot to him. You know, my dad is brilliant. He's a carpenter. He's incredibly creative. He builds machines. He builds boats. He builds houses. Um, But he didn't get to go to college, which he really would have loved to do. And so for him, my chance to get a higher education, to become a doctor, to participate really deeply in life and society in the way that medicine allows me to do, it means a lot to my dad. And his constant support means a lot to me. You went on to medical school at the University of Texas Medical Branch on Galveston Island, uh, an area devastated by Hurricane Ike in 2008. When you arrived, what was that like to work there or to learn at that medical school and and to see um, about the problems of access to care, something that we hear about? So I got involved in a student-run free clinic on Galveston Island called St. Vincent Student-Run Free Clinic. And... St. Vincent sees about between 1,200 and 2,000 unique patients a year for primary and specialty care, and it is a clinic of last resort. So if we could get our patients on Medicaid, we would. If we could get our patients plugged into the county health program, we would. But at the time I started medical school, 26% of Texans were uninsured, Galveston didn't have much of a county health program, and in the wake of Hurricane Ike, my medical school, which had traditionally run a safety net hospital, abruptly stopped caring for unfunded patients. And so there was this great need for basic medical care in the community, a need such that people would drive four hours round trip to get to a student-run free clinic, and a need such that people would show up to the emergency room and the emergency room would tell them, oh, this is not an emergency. And then the doctors there, out of wanting to do something for these patients who needed medical care, would refer them to the student-run free clinic. Tell us about Mr. Rose. He was one of, I guess, your first patients. Yeah, he was a lovely man. He was a great storyteller, and he had lived in Galveston a long time. He had lived this really interesting life, and he came to the student-run free clinic because he was having a lot of pain. And when I started hearing his story and examining him, I realized that his issue was pretty complicated. His eyes had turned kind of yellow. His urine smelled bad. He had a funny feeling in his throat. He'd stopped eating much. And he had this really bad pain. So I started trying to figure out what was going on with him when I started taking care of him. And it very quickly became clear that he needed some studies that we couldn't do at St. Vincent's. For example, I would have liked to do a CAT scan to look at his belly and see if there was anything going on in there that we couldn't see on our physical exam. And we knew he was sick, so we sent him to the emergency room, and they said, 
This is not a true emergency. This is not immediately threatening life or limb. Um, so you don't qualify for emergency care at this time unless you can pay for it. Um, and he couldn't. So he came back to the student-run free clinic. And I kept seeing him every week for months. I would do what I could to try to help him out with new symptoms as they came up. I would do my physical exam, and mostly we would just talk. And then one night, he got so sick that it was an emergency. He was at home, and he stopped being able to breathe comfortably. He felt like he was going to faint. So he went to the emergency room, and they put some oxygen on him, and they took some samples of his blood, and they did a CT scan, and they found that he had metastatic cancer. And that cancer had been inside him getting worse for all of those months that I had been trying to care for him. That anecdote relates to this theme throughout your book, you know, learning medicine at the, at the expense of the poor. If, if Mr. Rose had had um, the right kind of health insurance and, and not been in this ability to only be at a student-run free health clinic, maybe the cancer would have been discovered a lot earlier. Absolutely it would have. In fact, I think it would have been discovered even before he came to St. Vincent's if he would have had access to regular primary care. The other part of my story about Mr. Rose is that I made a pretty crucial mistake in his care. The first day he came in, he said that his urine smelled bad. And so I talked to my senior medical student and she said I should do a urine urinalysis, which is where you dip a little strip of paper into the urine and you look and see if there are any abnormalities. And when I did that test, it was my first time doing it, I dipped a little strip of paper and I looked at the little boxes and they were all wrong. It said that every single thing that could be wrong with his urine was wrong. And I looked at that and I said to myself, no, I must have done this test wrong. And in the middle of all of the things that were going on with him, I forgot about that urine test. It did not make the critical contribution that it should have made to our diagnostic workup because eventually we found out that he had kidney cancer. That's why his urine test was all wrong. And so I felt not just sad about his passing and not just angry about his lack of access to care, but I also felt very guilty that I, as a student, had made a mistake that hurt him in his real moment of need. And I came to realize through my training that as a student, I was almost exclusively seeing working class and poor people. So all my mistakes were made on those communities. They were made disproportionately on patients of color. And that problem is true across the country. Medical schools are deliberately placed in centers of urban poverty so that trainees can have access to patients who will submit to trainee-level care. 
Well, we're having this conversation with you, Dr. Pearson, uh, again, as the um, the country debates health care policy. Um, you're a resident now, again, at, at Seattle, but uh, when you were studying to be a doctor, how did you see the impact of Obamacare? And now that with talk of repeal, are you concerned? I'm very concerned. In states like Connecticut, where y'all have expanded Medicaid, you've seen, you know, the full benefit of the Affordable Care Act. I was training in Texas, and at the time that the Affordable Care Act came out, we actually hoped that it would make free clinics like St. Vincent's obsolete. We wanted St. Vincent's to become a portal to care where folks would come in, get triaged, get the first steps in their medical care, and then we would refer them along to the comprehensive care that they would now have access to. Because Texas didn't expand Medicaid, it didn't turn out like that. But when we look at the benefits of the Affordable Care Act across this country, we see things like 93% of children now have insurance and access to care. That's the highest rate of child insurance that we've ever seen in this country. The Affordable Care Act has prevented hundreds of thousands of families from falling into poverty and medical debt. Um, and has ensured access to care for millions of Americans. And so when I think about the steps forward, the next steps that this country should take in ensuring access to care, I think, okay, the Affordable Care Act isn't perfect, but we need to accept what is good about it and build on it, not tear it down. We talked about racial disparities uh, in the access of care. What are some solutions that you think would help, um, you know, relieve this problem? Um, even when Obamacare was uh, part of the, the solution, uh, people were still getting less care depending on, you know, their socioeconomic backgrounds. Absolutely. One of the interesting things about the data on racial disparities in care is that you can actually separate race and socioeconomic status in some cases. So, for example, when we look at physician bias, um, studies that control for socioeconomic status, access to care, all of these confounding factors still show that physicians consistently provide worse care to patients of color. And in the case of African-American men, Physician bias contributes independently to the earlier deaths of African-American men. And so one of the things that we need to do is address individual provider bias. Now, that's not going to go far enough because the primary drivers of health are really social factors, um, things like living in a clean, healthy neighborhood, having access to good schools, having access to safe places to exercise, and having economic security. So the stress of living in poverty and having to worry and struggle every day about how you're going to take care of your kids, how you're going to get food on the table, how you're going to get the rent paid, that stress causes biochemical changes within the body that contribute to worse health, higher blood sugar, higher blood pressure, worse health outcomes in the long run. And so if we really want to end racial disparities in healthcare, we have to focus on policies that are going to ensure economic security for American families. 
And those are things like reinforcing the earned income tax credit. Um, the earned income tax credit helped raise a lot of young children out of poverty. And so we need to be thinking about economic and social policies that reduce economic inequality. Those are health policies. Are we doing enough in this country to encourage a diverse pool of, of medical students who then go on into these communities? Definitely not. Um, we're actually educating fewer African-American physicians than we were in the 90s. So we've gone backwards when it comes to educating diverse medical force. Students of color are more likely to need access to student loans and access to grants to get to college in the first place. Um, students of color, younger students of color, need access to better elementary schools, junior highs, and high schools. And so to have a diverse physician workforce, we not only need, I think, straightforward affirmative action in med school admissions, but we need racial justice throughout the education system. Uh, given all of this, Dr. Pearson, are you happy with your decision to move forward in the career in medicine? I am. Medicine allows me to participate really deeply in the world. I think a life of participation in society and a life that feels morally centered and morally driven is a wonderful thing. I, I wouldn't change it. Mm. And what's next for you? I, I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, interview that you're a resident at Seattle Children's Hospital. Yeah, so I'm doing pediatrics. And pediatrics is fundamentally a social justice specialty. So children under five are the Americans most likely to live in poverty. And pediatrics is all about ensuring that every child has the best chance to live the fullest life they possibly could. I came to Seattle in part to see what it's like to train in a system that has more resources than Texas so that when I go back to Texas to serve my home community, I um, know what my patients should be getting and I know what they deserve from having seen it in a system that's a little bit more flush. Dr. Rachel Pearson is a researcher, a resident at Seattle Children's, and author of No Apparent Distress, A Doctor's Coming of Age on the Front Lines of American Medicine. Dr. Pearson, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Our show is produced by Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.